Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you. I am full of joy to share the word with you this morning. It's so good. This is what gives us life. This is what we live by. And so we just started a new series last week, Hello, My Name is Jesus, and it's all focused on him. And the more we get to know him, the better life is, the more we become like him. And that's the goal of the disciple, the follower of Jesus. And so um, last week was Matthew part one. Today is Matthew part two. If you missed last week, you can listen to it on the church website or YouTube or Facebook. But today we're going to pick up in chapter 17. And I'm just going to give an overview of the book. We're not going to cover everything, but we're going to touch on a lot of things. And as we go through, what we're doing is we're picking out attributes of Jesus. What is he like? What does he care about? What makes him tick? And then also his kingdom. What is his kingdom like? And how do we live as citizens in his kingdom? So the gospel is what we're focused on. The gospel um, is translated from the Greek word euangelion, and it means good news. Good news about what? It always has to do with the proclamation or an announcement of a king and the kingdom he's bringing. And so that is the good news. And the gospel is all four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four perspectives, one claim, one message. That is what the gospel is. So are you ready to jump back in, left off in chapter 17? All right. Glowing Jesus. So a week after Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter sees evidence of it in probably the most remarkable thing he's seen so far in the ministry. Jesus reveals his divinity in this. He takes his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a mountain. And as the disciples watch, Jesus transforms. Verse 2 of Matthew 17, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So the disciples see this few, this glimpse of his future glory. It's a foreshadowing of his resurrection and return, literally glowing. And the Bible often describes angels and God this way, shimmering with light. But then suddenly Moses and Elijah appear and there Jesus and Moses, Elijah are just talking like old friends. And and Peter, James, and John are just amazed and terrified. And then the Father comes in a bright cloud, envelops them, and the voice from the cloud says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Whoa! And the disciples at this point are now face down on the ground. Um, and <laughs> I don't even know what they're thinking but they are face down on the ground. And then what happens next is Jesus comes and touches them. Says, You can get up. It's okay to get up now. And I can just see them like peeking out like, ah! and they look up and no one's there except Jesus. 
And they come down the mountain, and he tells them, don't tell anybody about what you've seen until I've been raised from the dead. Okay. So... So Jesus is glorious. That's what we're going we're gonna to pull from this. He is divine. He is glorious. He's beyond what we can comprehend and imagine. So at this point, Jesus begins sharing with his disciple, uh, disciples about what's going to happen. He knows the end is approaching. And so he starts telling them that he'll be killed in Jerusalem and that he'll be raised from the dead after three days. And then um, in Matthew, a handful of miracles are recorded. A boy with a demon is healed, and Jesus takes the opportunity to teach the disciples that they only need a little faith to do impossible things. Money from a fish's mouth is retrieved to pay their temple tax. Two blind men by the roadside outside of Jericho are healed. It says in Matthew 20, verse 30, Jesus had compassion on these blind men, had compassion on them, and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and follow him and followed him. So a key aspect of Jesus is that he is a miracle worker. Amen? And um, with a little faith, nothing will be impossible. So we pull that out from that um, interaction. And then later in the in Matthew 18 we have a very important section that shows us how much Jesus values reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 15 says, "If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over." This verse teaches us to go straight to the person that you have an issue with rather than going to others first. And then if they don't respond or listen to you, then you can include another person or two. And if they still won't listen, then you can include the church. And you will remember back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're offering God worship and you remember that someone has something against you, Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. Because God wants us to worship him in unity and bring that together and not have these fragmented relationships when we worship him. So um, whenever you get hurt by someone, and this is going to happen a lot. This is going to just happen a lot. We just have to accept that this is going to happen a lot in this church family, as much as I don't like that, it, it just does. And so when we get hurt by someone, the devil is going to motivate you toward division and God is going to motivate you toward reconciliation. So if you're upset with someone and you're just thinking about like, oh, I just want to get away from them. I don't want to be around them. Steps back, steps back. That's the enemy encouraging division. But if you are going, man, what they said really hurt me. Mm. I really want to, you know, get back and restore the relationship. I want to be able to let them know 
you know, what they said that hurt me and be able to forgive them. I want to repent because maybe I did something that I'm not aware of in the interaction. See how that motivation is reconciliation. And um, so we, so just a couple examples. You got to just, when we're hurt, just say, hey, you know what? You probably didn't mean it, but when you said this, it sounded like you meant this. Is, is that what you meant? Could you clarify for me? Because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding between us. Or, hey, you probably didn't mean it, but when you said this or you did this, it hurt my feelings, and i just really love to reconcile with you. Okay? So this is really key for us, guys. We have an awesome, healthy church, and we want to keep moving in ways that bring more health, and this is one area. Amen. So um, the key of Jesus here is he desires his people to reconcile. So let's ask ourselves this morning, who do I need to reconcile with? Then in chapters 18 through 20 of Matthew, he spends a lot of his time teaching people about his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, or sometimes the kingdom of God, it's called, is the kingdom that God rules in heaven and on earth. That's what it is. And Jesus frequently uses word pictures to describe how it functions and how to live as citizens of it. When asked, who's the greatest person in this kingdom? Jesus calls over a child and said, anyone who, hum who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in his kingdom, the humble ones are the greatest. Wow. So let's ask ourselves this morning, do I need to lay down arrogance and pick up humility? Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis on the topic of pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Wow. Jesus used parables, too, to, to describe what his kingdom is like. A shepherd leads his flock of 99 sheep to find one missing sheep. When he finds it, he rejoices. Jesus said God rejoices, too, when a lost person returns to the heavenly kingdom where he belongs. Finding lost sheep is the ministry of Jesus, and it's the ministry that he's passed on to his disciples. So a key to uh, kingdom citizenship is to find lost sheep. Let's ask ourselves, have I been on mission to find lost sheep? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The king is merciful, canceling an exorbitant debt for his servant. 
But that servant turns around and demands that someone who owed him a small amount of money pay it back. The man can't, so that servant throws him in prison. Then the king finds out and is enraged with his servant. You were forgiven so much and you can't forgive? You wicked servant, now you're going to prison. So we learn that in the kingdom of heaven, forgiving others is not optional. Ask ourselves today, is there anyone I hold unforgiveness against? <clears throat> A rich young man followed, <clears throat> who followed all the laws of Moses asks Jesus, what do I still lack? Jesus' answer sounds like several snippets from his Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter my kingdom of heaven. At this, the disciples are just kind of astonished and go, well, then who can be saved? <laughs> Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's the point. It is completely impossible on our own. But often possessions and earthly treasure keep us from coming when Jesus says, follow me. So a key to kingdom citizenship is that we love the king more than possessions or money. So let's ask ourselves, do I love my stuff more than God? The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who hired workers for his vineyard. In the early morning, the landowner found workers willing to work the day for one denarius. The, lander, the landowner got more workers at 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. That evening, all the workers get paid. The early morning workers get upset, though, and the landowner says to them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So a key aspect to the kingdom of heaven is, is that the last will be first and the first last. And that kingdom citizens rejoice in the king's generosity. They're not envious of it. Let's ask ourselves, have I been envious of God's generosity? Has he been generous with someone and I've been envious of that? Jesus said to them, in the types of kingdoms you're used to, rulers vie for the best seat and they lord their authority over the people. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
So key to kingdom citizenship is the citizens desiring greatness in this kingdom become slaves and servants. Wow. Let's ask ourselves, where am I looking to be served? How can I be a servant instead? Savior on a donkey, Matthew 21, 5. Look, your king is coming to you, riding on a donkey's colt. This is the Sunday morning before his death. Jesus fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9 about Israel's Messiah arriving on a donkey. Crowds are gathered there for Passover. It's the biggest festival of the year. It's a springtime holiday commemorating God's deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. It's an exciting time of year, but even more so this year because of Jesus. The Jews have been praying for a deliverer, a Messiah from King David's family, and they expect the Messiah to deliver them from slavery once again, this time from Roman occupiers. Many believe that Jesus is this deliverer, so they give him a kingly welcome, spreading their cloaks and palm leaves on the path before him. And they cheer, the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, during the five days before his arrest, Jesus teaches in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders are looking for a way to trap him. Most Jewish leaders detest Jesus, because he says he is the son of God, which is saying he is equal to God, which is blasphemous and deserving of death. They disagree with Jesus on many points. They judge his observance of the Sabbath as too casual. Sabbath is a day Jesus heals people, takes long walks, and picks snacks of grain in wheat fields. But they had it backwards thinking that man was made for Sabbath. But Jesus t teaches us Sabbath was made really to serve man. They also envy his popularity. And the two leading groups of Jewish leaders in that day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus didn't care much for the distinct teachings of either. The Pharisees were oppressively legalistic, insisting that the Jews not only observe all the laws of Moses, but loads of extra laws that they made, teaching that those extra laws were just as important as the laws of Moses. And this created an unbearable load for the people. Sadducees were Jewish leaders made up of mainly priests and the social elite. They controlled temple worship and were well represented on the Jewish governing council called the Sanhedrin, which tried Jesus. Sadducees felt bound only to the laws of Moses, but they believed that there was no such thing as the resurrection. So seeking to trap Jesus, they asked him questions like, by what authority are you doing all this? Did your authority come from heaven or men? Planning they could trap him with either answer. But instead of answering, Jesus shares parables, which tell that the kingdom of heaven will be given to those who will produce its fruit. The crowds are astonished at Jesus' teachings as he undergoes more trapping attempts. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? How will 
marriage work at the resurrection? Which command is the greatest one? It seems by chapter 23 that Jesus can stand it no longer, and he begins pointedly addressing these teachers of the law, calling them hypocrites and blind guides. Jesus is so frustrated because here they are misrepresenting his kingdom. They're doing the exact opposite of what he's doing. He's opening the door to the kingdom. He's making a way. He's letting people know what it's really like. And here it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Hmm. So Jesus is passionate about opening the doors to the kingdom for people to enter. One day before his arrest, Jesus and the disciples are on their way out of the temple, and the disciples start talking about its beautiful architecture. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, this is Matthew 24, 1 and 2, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, but he responded, I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Of course, they want to know when this will happen, and since they're on the topic of endings, they also ask him about his second coming and when the earth will end. Jesus' answer sounds like what we read in the book of Revelation. Um, some statements are intended for the immediate future and others for the distant future. But what we do know is that Jesus was looking ahead towards several acts of judgment spread throughout history and foretelling them. One portion seems to point directly to when the Romans destroy the temple 40 years later in the process of crushing a Jewish revolt for independence. Other parts refer to a time still to come in the future, like when everyone sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30. And the timing of this future event, Jesus says, remains a mystery even to him that only the Father knows. <clears throat> then he begins to tell them what the kingdom of heaven will be like at that time. He says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise and five were foolish. The five wise were prepared and ready when the bridegroom came and they came in to the wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them to care for while he was gone. Two when he returned, he found that two servants did well and the, um, with what the landowner gave them. And those servants heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we all long to hear? But one servant does not do well and is chastised by the landowner, you wicked, lazy servant, and is thrown out. So a key to kingdom citizenship is that we be wise and ready. Always wise and ready and prepared and that we're good stewards of what we've been given as we wait for the king's return. Amen? So these parables 
and prophecies are meant to motivate us toward obedience in the present and preparation for the future. A quote from the Holman New Testament commentary on this, on this section, Jesus' main challenge to all believers, be ready at all times. Do not let down your guard. Keep doing the work of the kingdom. We are told about the future so that we may change our behavior in the present in preparation for the future and its rewards. Anytime we read prophecy, we must ask ourselves, what difference should this make in my life now that I may be more ready for the future? Because we're not just here to live like a little bit better life. We're here because we believe that Jesus is the Messiah who died and rose again and is returning for those who have followed him and serve him. And we want to be among those who have been wise, who have been prepared, and who have been faithful in the waiting. On to verses 31 through 33 of 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus explains here that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so does judgment. This part is not a parable. It's a real event in the future, in future history, to help us understand how the judgment will be carried out. God will separate his true followers from those who refuse, who have refused to submit to his kingship as easily as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And judgment criteria in this passage involves good deeds like those who fed Jesus when he was hungry or gave him a drink when he was thirsty or clothes when he needed them or a visit when he was in prison. When they ask Jesus, how could we possibly do these things for you? He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these, my, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So we learn from this that we can show love to God by caring for the needs of other believers. And I'll mention here, we don't earn salvation by works, we know this, but works like these will be evidence that someone has been saved. These are done because one is saved, not to gain salvation. Amen? The Last Supper. Just like the Passover meal was a way for Jews to remember God rescuing them from slavery. Jesus institutes a new sacred act to commemorate deliverance. Christians have been observing this since then. It's called by various names, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, which is taken from the Greek word thankful. Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. 
then Judas leaves the meal early to arrange for this new practice to become reality. In the garden later that evening praying, Jesus is deeply troubled. We see him struggle as he prays regarding what he will have to endure. Three times he asks the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Ultimately, he yields to the Father's will and accepts what he must do in order to redeem mankind. A key attribute of Jesus is that he yields to the Father's will. And let's ask ourselves this morning, am I willing to yield to the Father when things are difficult? As we mentioned, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, their challenge was to get rid of him without sparking a riot, and Judas solves their problem. He offers to lead them to Jesus at night. No one is sure exactly why Judas did this. Greed is a possible motive. Another guess is that he hoped to pressure Jesus into defending himself in order to start the Jewish revolution. Regardless of his motive, Judas leads a group of temple guards to Jesus in the garden. Arresting officers take Jesus to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, waiting for him as a 70-member council that enforces Jewish law. They scramble to, to find witnesses so that they can try him on the spot. But the witnesses can't seem to agree or they don't offer testimony that would lead to the death penalty. So in frustration, Caiaphas demands to know if Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus replies, in the future, you will see the son of man seated in the place of honor at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. This does it. He's claimed divinity. As far as Caiaphas is concerned, this is arrogant blasphemy. They spit in his face, punch his face, slap him, and condemn Jesus to death. Only Roman occupiers reserve the right to execute prisoners. So after sunrise, the Jews take Jesus to the regional governor, Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to execute Jesus, so he gives the Jews a choice. Pilate will free either Jesus or the murderer, Barabbas. The Jews choose Barabbas. Pilate washes his hands in their presence, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and Jesus is handed over to be crucified. Jesus is flogged, stripped of his clothes. A scarlet robe is placed on him, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and then he's struck over the head with a staff repeatedly. They remove that robe, put his own clothes back on, and he's led away to be crucified. By 9 a.m., he's nailed to a cross. After six hours of hanging there, he cries out in a loud voice and gives up his spirit. Then some crazy things happened to where those who were guarding Jesus became terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The curtain in the temple was torn in two 
there was this earthquake and tombs were broken open and holy people were raised back to life and they're walking around. It's a wild, this is a wild story we're going through this morning. <laughs> I told you this was an overview. We're just hitting it all according to Matthew here. Okay. So a key aspect of Jesus is he was willing to endure the most horrific torture and death that we might be saved. Wow. This act of rescue saved mankind from the penalty of their sin. Because of this act, we can now choose to receive his gift of redemption through his shed blood and be washed clean of sin and restored to relationship with the Father, freed to live as a citizen of his kingdom. So let's ask ourselves, have you accepted Jesus' gift for yourself? Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus' body in his tomb and rolls a stone in front of the entrance. This quick burial happens before sunset, which is when Sabbath begins. The body of Jesus rests in the tomb during Sabbath, guarded by Roman soldiers. He's back. The next morning is Sunday, the first Easter. Several women come to the tomb at daybreak. It's their first opportunity to wash Jesus' body and wrap it in the scented spices for a proper burial. Matthew's account says the women are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark tells us that the other Mary is the mother of James. Mark also adds that Salome came along too. Because the four gospel accounts are not identical, it's just another proof that it is true. Because if a story is fabricated, the witnesses all repeat an agreed-upon script. Matthew's account shares that there was an earthquake, that an angel pushes aside the massive stone that blocks the entrance to the tomb, that the guards faint and then wake up and run off to report what happened. The women arrive at the empty tomb now guarded by an angel. The angel has a face shining like lightning and clothes white as snow. And he tells them, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said he would. Go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So the women hurry off to share the angel's good news with the disciples. They're afraid yet full of joy. Then suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings. It's like, hey, Marys, what's up? (laughs) They clasp his feet and worship him. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid and go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me there. The way Matthew records this, makes me just think that Jesus was just too excited and he wanted to see them too. Because he just said the same thing that the angel just said. And um, 
he just wanted to go and say it too. I just love it. So the women hurry off to do that. The disciples follow the instruction that the women deliver to them. And in verse 16 of chapter 28, we have the profoundly important great commission. Matthew 28, I'll start in verse 16. The 11 disciples go to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So what can we learn about Jesus here? He has all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority. And his followers are called to make disciples, call others to come and follow Jesus, receive the invitation to be a citizen in the kingdom, then baptize those new disciples because baptism is an act of obedience and an outward expression of the decision to follow him. Then teach others to live according to the ways of the kingdom. That's part of the package. So teach everyone to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And lastly, Jesus will always be with you. He will always be with you. Amen. Well, there we are at the end of the book of Matthew. And I would say if I could just boil down the last two weeks in this whole book, the main point would be Jesus is the Messiah. The good news, the gospel proclaims that the king and his kingdom have come. And we've been able to pull out attributes of this king and what he's like that we can copy and live like him and what it looks like to live as citizens in his kingdom. Amen. Bill, would you come in close? Thanks, Marilee. Great job. Okay, uh, would you stand with me? We're going to respond for a minute after two whirlwind weeks of getting through an entire gospel account. It's a lot of ground, but Marilee did a great job boiling it down for us. Would you just close your eyes for a minute and spend a moment with the Lord here? Um, Marilee highlighted that Jesus endured torture and death that we might be saved and asked, have you accepted this gift? You've heard about this king and this kingdom in the last two weeks, or even just this morning. Would you like to enter it? The door is open. He made a way. If so, tell him so in prayer right now. Just say, Jesus, I, I have a glimpse of what you're like as a king, and I want to live in your kingdom. I want to make you my king. If you're a person who's done that or you did it right now, there's a slew of things merely covered about what it means to live in the kingdom, to be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. 
I'm going to read a bunch of the questions that she asked. And as one strikes you, take it to the Lord in prayer. If there's something that you feel convicted by, it's called repentance. You just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've not been in alignment with your kingdom, but I want to come into alignment with me. Forgive me for this and help me to live your way going forward. So here's some of the questions. Is there someone you need to forgive? Do you need to humble yourself? Do you celebrate the generosity of the Lord? Or are you envious when he's generous with others? Are you more in love with the stuff you have or the stuff you want than you are with Jesus? You can tell if it's preventing you from following him. When you feel offended, do you go to reconcile? Or do you go talk to other people instead? Are you finding lost sheep, bringing them back to Jesus? Are you ready for Jesus' return? And are you willing to yield to the Father? Lord, I pray you'd bless every prayer of repentance that just happened this morning, that you would do as your word said you would do and cleanse all of us from unrighteousness, bring us back into reconciled relationship with you. Thank you for paying the price for that, Jesus, on the cross, for proving your power to do it by being raised from the dead and being alive and well today. And Lord, help us to cultivate a church family here at New Day that lives in alignment with your kingdom, where you're the king and we yield to you, where we follow you, where we do the things you did and that you've called us to do. Help us to just be well committed to get back in alignment whenever we go astray, because we do so often. Help us to support one another in that process, spurring one another on, sharpening one another to be good citizens in your wonderful, amazing kingdom. And Jesus, we look forward to your return when you'll redeem all things, where the pain, the suffering, the sickness, the death and the sadness, the loneliness, the anxieties, the things that we feel today that we go, this is not right, will be made right once and for all. We just say in faith that we believe that's going to happen. We get ourselves ready for that day. We worship you, we serve you with how we live our lives. Amen.